I invite you to open your copy of the scriptures and join me in John's Gospel. It's a New Testament book we've been studying through, and in chapter 4, it seems like we've been on page 888 for a couple weeks now, <clears throat> and uh, we will be wrapping that up as we work our way through this chapter. I know um, some, as you've read it in advance, you're a little bit like 42 verses, James. 42 verses. It's going to be awesome. I remember going to an amusement park, um, Great America, outside of Chicago, and they had this ride. They called it the, uh, the Edge, and it was a big round ride, like a disc, and from it hung these seats, and you would get in those seats, and the, the Edge would lift you way, way up in the air. I can't remember how tall it was, and then it would drop you. And it would stop before it hit the ground. You hoped. Thankfully, every time I was there, the ride was closed. There was no way I was going on that. Another time I was at an amusement park. I must do this a lot. It was the youth pastor and me. And we were outside in Maryland. And uh, there was another ride. They called it the slingshot. And it worked the opposite direction that the edge did, where it plummeted you to the bottom. The slingshot, everybody gets in on the ground and then, literally, like a slingshot, it launches you up into the air. I didn't ride that one either. I rode a lot of roller coasters, but I don't dare do something like that. It's a little beyond me. It may feel a little bit like that today as you listen, though, and as you follow along in John 4, because we're going to go really fast, and we're going to go really high. All right? So... I think what Jesus is trying to do here, or what John is doing as he has collated stories, events, and circumstances of Jesus' life, and he's organized his material in such a way, he's trying to build an argument. Even here, early in his gospel, we're seeing that argument taking shape. We learn that Jesus, um, chapter 4 and verse 1, follow along as I read these first few verses, Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making more or making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples. So he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria, so he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, Near the field that Jacob had given his, to his son Joseph, Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. Why are we getting these kind of details at the beginning of this narrative? Well, there are several connections from this passage to chapter 3. Um, unlike a book we might read today where uh, the story ends in a chapter and then a new story begins, most of the Bible is written without chapters and verses. In fact, all of the Bible was written without chapters and verses in mind. We see a connection between baptism here in 4.1 to the baptism uh, that Jesus called for back in chapter 3. We see a connection between purification. Uh, there's a connection that water will have throughout John's gospel of baptism for purification, of water turned to wine, of physical and spiritual birth. And now John has closely put the dialogue that Jesus had with Nicodemus, chapter 3, right next to a dialogue he's about to have with this woman at the well. Chapter 3 ends with both Jesus and John baptizing. And John's disciples are concerned that people are leaving John to follow Jesus. This carries over into chapter 4 in the first few verses. We see this. What's the big deal that the Pharisees knew that Jesus was getting more followers than John? They didn't care about John. Why would they care about Jesus? Here's why. The Pharisees believed and opposed. They believed John was not doing what he should do. They opposed his ministry, the fact that he, a rogue guy, although he's from the Levite tribe, he is calling people to repentance and he is performing baptism. 
He's working outside of the system. And now that Jesus has eclipsed John, they are definitely going to oppose him. And that has prompted Jesus to leave Judea. Now, I was hoping we could help you with a little map. I don't know that it worked out. Um, Oh, there it is. Like magic, it appears. Some of us like maps. Some of us don't. Dora the Explorer, where are you? A map, a map, a map. So there's two ways to go from the bottom to the top. The bottom, you see that light blue? That's Judea. Samaria is the bluish purple. And then the brown up to the top is uh, Galilee. You could go to the right, a very long course that would send a Jew out of Judea into Gentile regions, and they would have to cross the Jordan River. They would go north for a long distance, and then they would cut back over into Galilee and pick up the road and head to the lake. Or you could take a shorter trip. That shorter trip is right there in the middle, and guess where that leads you through? The region of Samaria. It was a three-day hike a three-day walk. So when Jesus approaches the well and it says that he is tired, understand why. You see those ridges and ripples. There's some Bible atlases that have some really amazing uh, images that show you the topography. It would be like walking the Black Hills from one from the south to the north. Up, down, around, over, under. It would have been exhausting. The ancient historian Josephus tells us that in spite of the Jews' dislike, maybe even hatred of the Samaritans, they preferred the shorter route. Go figure, right? It's easier. It's shorter. The details that we also find out, what is the deal with Samaria? Well, this region that you see there on the map is rife with ancient political rivalries, and religious rivalries. You see, during the kingdom of Rehoboam, Solomon's son, Israel split into two factions, in fact, became two nations. Jeroboam, the first king of the north, he did not want his subjects to go to Jerusalem to worship, so he put up golden calves. The northern part of Israel's territory up in Dan and all the way down to the southern edge, right on the border with Judah. And over time, as his kingdom and his reign came and went, a new king took the throne. His name was Omri. He built his capital city and named it Samaria. And that name Samaria became attached to a region, and then at times in the Old Testament, it's used to describe all of northern kingdom. When the Assyrians conquered the northern kingdom of Israel, they deported all the Israelites who had means, who had money, who had talents, who had new trades and had skills, and then they resettled the land with foreigners. And those foreigners intermarried with the poorest of the poor who were left behind. And those Israelites who had been true Israel in their DNA and their marrying and all that intermarried with these foreigners. Now after the kingdom of Judah was sent into exile into Babylon, and they returned, they viewed the Samaritans as rebels because they were part of the northern ten tribes. They viewed them as mixed race, half-breeds, illegitimate because they had married with foreigners, and that's where we get the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. They were not allowed to help rebuild the walls of Jerusalem or even worship in the temple. In 400 B.C., these Samaritans built a rival temple to the Jerusalem temple, and they built it on the Mount Gezerim. They developed their own religion. They used the Bible, but only the first five books of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch, Moses' writings. They rejected all the rest of the Jewish Old Testament scriptures, all the prophets, the Psalms, the Proverbs, the wisdom literature, the poetry. Now, we've just went through about a thousand years of history. Let's bring it a little closer to Jesus' day. Jesus lived and walked on this earth somewhere between the, the year 3 B.C. And, and 30 to 33 A.D., depending on how you grade that. 
about 120 years before Jesus began his ministry, a man named John Hyrcanus, probably said it wrong, but he's not going to complain. He decided he was going to free Israel of all outsiders, and he was going to reestablish the nation. It had been overrun by Greeks, Babylonians, Egyptians, Persians, Assyrians. He was done with it all. He attacks the city of Samaria and killed its people. He went to this temple that they built and destroyed it. He required and subjugated the Samaritans. He established the boundaries of Judea all the way down to the southernmost part of Beersheba. He did all these things because of zeal for a nation, but also of hatred for a people. Are you beginning to see why there's tension here and why these details matter that Jesus went, had to go to Samaria because it was the shortest route for him to get back to Galilee? Why he left Judea because he was being opposed by the religious leaders and why going through Samaria would evoke the response that we see both from this woman and his disciples. Let's pick up again from our text in verse 7. The Samaritan woman I'm sorry, a woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me? Not only that were Jews and Samaritans, but then a woman of Samaria. You see, Jewish men did not talk to women especially foreign women. She knew the culture of the day. She had been mistreated by Jews before. There was nothing new about how the social structure was to play out, but Jesus is not conforming to those rules and those standards. We're told that the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans in verse 9. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it was that is saying to you, Give me a drink, You would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. And Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. There's pause here for a moment. This, this woman is tracking a little bit with Jesus, but she's also a little bit off. Let's, let's just go back and recognize some of the, the details that are also here in this text. Jacob's well was in a plain. That plain was surrounded on one side by Mount Gezerim. That mountain served as a backdrop for this story. That was the place in the Old Testament where the Deuteronomic blessings were given as Israel entered, was about to enter the land. On Mount Gezerim, where the people were gathered, half of Israel were gathered on Mount Ebal, the other half were gathered, and one side shouted blessings for fulfilling the covenant, others shouted curses. This was a significant historical place. John includes it for a reason. We'll come back to that. There's also this question of the well, uh, Jacob's well, as it's called. It was given to his son Joseph, we're told in the text. This, is, uh, this shows us that Sychar, it was the field, or Sychar is a city outside of the city of Samaria. It's a smaller town. It was near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph in verse 5. That refers all the way back to the book of Genesis and Joshua. This town that Jesus is outside is probably the town of Shechem. It's 
The land that this well is on is the land that Jacob bought from the sons of Hamor when he came back from his time across the river with his uncle. It's the land that he promised Joseph on his deathbed. Joseph, I'm giving you this land that I purchased. Joseph used it for a burial place. When the Israelites left Egypt, they took his preserved body, embalmed body, and they buried it on his property. What's the significance of these things? Jacob's well in Mount Gezerim. Jesus wants everyone to know. Let me say this, restate this. John wants everyone to know that wherever Jesus goes, it's holy ground. And he is taking holy ground. A place of blessing and cursing. A place that had significance in the story of the people of Israel. And in this place, Jesus encounters the Samaritan woman in the framework of a holy geography, which Jesus transcends, as we will see. She asks, are you greater than the guy who dug this well and gave water here in this arid place? Are you greater than the guy who lived here and raised his sons here and who uh, nourished his livestock here? Jesus says, I am. And in fact, as it relates to Mount Gezerim and the temple that was there, or Jerusalem and the temple that's there, Jesus is about to say, I'm greater than those too. He says, divine worship is only possible through him, and it will no longer be limited to structures or locations. This unexpected conversation reveals a divine appointment. So as we look at verses 7 through 26, I want us to see that Jesus is a Messiah for all people. doesn't matter if you're Native American, if you're just cracker white, or if you're from any other tribe, tongue, or ethnicity, or location. Black, white, brown, whatever, whomever, Jesus proves he is a Messiah for all peoples. And here's how we see this. This woman is going out. Notice it's the sixth hour. This is not the time you draw water. It's hot by that time. It's noon. The sun is in its full peak. And it's only going to get hotter. So Jesus recognizes this woman is here not by choice but by necessity. And in her mundane process of going out to draw water from this this well that's just a reservoir for stagnant water that happens to seep in or rainwater collected in one of those downpours, it just sits there. Jesus wants to interrupt and does interrupt her routine with a divine appointment. In verses 7 through 14, Jesus makes a deliberate play on the words using living water. On a physical level, living water was highly sought after. It's spring water. It's water that's gushing out of the ground as opposed to the stagnant water that was at the bottom of that well. On a spiritual level, Jesus was using this language to point out that it was God who is the one who gives and is the source of life. We see this in Genesis, in Isaiah, and Job. Jesus could also be alluding to that time in Israel's wilderness wanderings when God spoke and used Moses and the rock started bursting forth and spewing forth fresh water for the people. We see in Jeremiah 2.13 that God laments that his people have forsaken him. The spring of living water. In Isaiah 12.3 the prophet envisions the joy with which people will draw water from the wells of salvation. That which Lana read to us just a few moments ago. Rabbinic thought associated the provision of water with the coming of the Messiah. And here is Jesus saying, if you knew, if you knew who was standing before you, you wouldn't have waited for him to open his mouth. You would have asked him to give you living water. Jesus shows this woman 
that he can cleanse her path. He's, he's taking the, the double meaning of living water, fresh water versus stagnant water, and spiritual water versus sin, and he is starting a conversation with her. He asserts his greatness over Jacob, who dug the well, because he says everyone who drinks from this water is going to need it again, but I'm going to give you water that will actually itself produce a well of water that's springing up in you. And that means there's a never-ending supply of what you need in me. Are you hearing me? Jesus is saying, come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Rest for your souls. He's telling this woman in language she can understand, he will give her a water, a living water, an experience that will transcend human needs and will itself nourish her life forever. That's the kind of Jesus that we're talking about here. Jesus also says to her, the woman says, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw more water. In verse 14, she's starting to get it. Okay, Jesus is the source. But then the idea of, I don't want to have to come all the way out here again, she's still not quite there. So Jesus says to her this, go and call your husband and come here in verse 16. The woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you're right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands. And the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. Oh, wow. How did this guy know that? Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. As far as she is concerned, they're two total strangers. No one is ever at the well when she comes out between noon and 12.30. That is why she comes out. She's been ostracized by her own people because of her multiple husbands and failed marriages and her perhaps promiscuous ways in that she is now living with a man. Nobody wants to touch this woman and she chooses to go draw water at a time when all the other women of the city of Sychar would have been gone. She's intentionally avoiding community because that community has rejected her. And now this guy? How does he know this stuff? Look at what Jesus, she says. Verse 19, the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. That's a pretty good guess, right? I mean, how else would he know all this? And so she continues, Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, Gezerim, the backdrop for their story and their encounter. But you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain, Gezerim, nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know, we worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when true, the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit. And those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. Well, the woman moves from their theological debate about the location of worship and what is legitimate to this. I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. The Samaritans had enough in the first five books of the Old Testament to know there would be a Messiah. You think your Old Testament is dead and dusty and dry? Brothers and sisters, let me encourage you to read it again and think deeply about how it points to Jesus. If this woman who had a distorted, synchronistic religion had enough knowledge from the Old Testament in the first five books to know that there would be a Christ, 
Oh boy, there are many gems for those of us who have the Spirit of God in us to discover from reading the Old Testament. But we go on. And she says, I I know that the Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Wow. He is more than a prophet. He is the Messiah. Now let's let's take a moment and unpack some of this, that what we see here in, in these verses. Jesus was not shy in making the claims that he makes, the one who can give living water, the one who is greater than Jacob. He requests her to bring her husband. And this isn't an attack. This isn't Jesus trying to embarrass or shame her. He is asking her to do something in order to elicit from her a confession. And what she does as she says, Sir, I have no husband. Her heart, we see, is beginning to soften to this man who breaks convention by speaking to her, who has offered her something she's never had but has longed for her whole life. Not physical water, but a cleansing of the soul. And she's softening toward him. His response prompts her to recognize he is a prophet. How else could this stranger know all this about her? And as I said a moment ago, Jesus has declared himself greater than Jacob. He's declared himself now here in these last verses as greater than a location and a ritual, the temple. He has actually told her he is the Messiah. That he enables true worship. As we look at this, Jesus is offering salvation to someone that by pedigree and by social customs he he should have nothing to do with. Meanwhile, verse 27, just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, perhaps to the woman, what are you seeking after? To kind of intervene between Jesus and and her. Or, They didn't say to Jesus, why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. This woman is so changed by what she has just heard from Jesus that she rushes back to town to go to the very people who had ostracized her, the very people who had uh, shamed her and shunned her, the very people that she was afraid of. And she goes to tell them, you need to see this guy. He's the real deal. Come with me. Jesus proves that he is the Savior for the world which is what is, comes in our final verse, in verse 42. This, this recognition, this title, that he is the Savior of the world. And what John the writer is doing is in chapter 3, he shows us that Jesus is interacting with the Jew of the highest order, a ruler of the Sanhedrin, a man who was respected, who was influential, who had uh, been theologically trained. He was a Pharisee named named Nicodemus. But in chapter 4, John wants us to see that Jesus isn't just for the elites or the Jews even, but he is for the lowest of the low, a Samaritan and a woman. This was a misogynistic culture. It was a patriarchal culture. And Jesus is now interacting with this woman who is also a Samaritan, who is also a great sinner, who is also practicing false worship, a woman who wasn't educated, who didn't have pedigree. John is wanting us to see in chapter 4 that Jesus is not only a Savior for the Jews, as in chapter 3, but he is also a Savior to the Gentiles. Because right after this passage, what we conclude chapter 4 with is Jesus finally arriving in Galilee, And he heals the son of a centurion, likely a Gentile. 
He's received in Galilee, but he's rejected by his own people in Judah. The the irony and the, the reality is that whether you think you are it or whether you know you are not, we all need Jesus. And he is a savior for all who recognize that need. As the story continues, the disciples arrive at the scene, a little shocked, to be honest with you, that Jesus is speaking with her. They are shocked that Jesus is um, not rebuking them or her, but they are there. And then she leaves, she goes into town, and we pick up in verse 31, the disciples Meanwhile, while she's gone, the disciples were urging Jesus, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? There were no wrappers laying around by the well, so how did they know? And Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Well, that's single-mindedness. Let's focus. Do you not say, he goes on, there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Right? We are there, right? I came from Indiana where planting season has got to be done by now or else, and you got four months, and you are just spraying to keep weeds down. You're working the edges of the fields, and you are just waiting for the harvest Four months, set your clock, November, it all is about to break loose. Isn't this the saying Jesus says? There are yet four months, then comes the harvest. Look, boys, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true. One sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Now, what in the world is Jesus talking about? Crops and harvest. What are the white fields that he sees? Well, before we get there, let me just pause us for a moment. John's argument is that the Jewish Christ, the Messiah that the Jews are looking for, and what we find here that the Samaritans are also looking for, is in fact Jesus. He is the Son of God. But not only is this long-awaited Messiah Jesus... He is also the Messiah for the Gentiles, non-Jews. John's second argument already here in chapter 4 is that the Jews who lived where they should have been looking for the Messiah are rejecting him. And Jesus is getting a greater following in a place you would not expect, a heavily Gentile population up in Galilee. John wants us to know as his readers those Jews who had been scattered around the empire through countless oppressions and deportations, who under Greek or Rome had then moved out of Judea to find business opportunities in larger cities and other places, and those Jews who had come, uh, those people who were not Jews but had become proselytes to Jews. John is writing so that those people, those that don't live in Judea, but who claim to be Jews, either by conversion to it or by being born into it, he's he's writing his gospel to tell them, don't make the same mistakes those in the city did. Believe in Jesus. Based on Jesus' words and the witness of others, this is our plea to people today. Believe in Jesus. Thirst for him as one who is living in a dry and barren land, thirsts for water. Seek him as though he were treasure hidden in your backyard. Confess your sins to the one who already knows everything about you. 
Will you receive him as the Savior who has come into the world to redeem you? If this is something that the Spirit may be stirring in your hearts, I invite you to see one of the elders on the back of your bulletin and talk with them after the service this morning. We'd be more than happy to answer questions that you might have. This woman instinctively responded to Jesus by going and telling other people, even those that treated her poorly. For those of us who have believed, are we doing what this woman does? Are we going and telling others, even perhaps our enemies? We see that Jesus is not only a Messiah for all peoples, Jews and Gentiles, even the despised Samaritans. But we see that Jesus has given a mission for all disciples. He is the Messiah for all peoples, and he is given a mission to all disciples. Jesus tells his disciples as they're questioning, Where, why aren't you hungry? And he's like, brothers, I am so consumed with doing my father's work that it actually suppresses my appetite for human food, earthly food. And the satisfaction of doing gospel kingdom work surpasses the nourishment of human food. And he he is so consumed with obeying God. He was sent into the world to take away the sin in the world, to call people to embrace his teaching in ways. He's been working while they've been shopping. He's been sowing seeds of his kingdom, and they've already begun to bear fruit in the life of of this woman. Jesus reminded the disciples their mission was to labor for him and reap where they had not sown in verses 35 through 8. We see his kingdom-mindedness. But then we also see that as the disciples went into Sychar to buy food, they returned and they find Jesus talking with someone. We see this fatigued, famished, thirsty man knowing what his mission was and he was doing it. We see in this woman on a different level, verse 28, did you notice that in her haste, she left the bucket at the well? She was so excited to tell people about Jesus, she forgot why she came. The living water does indeed surpass that of that well. Gospel work is a shared work. That's what Jesus says in verses 35 and 37 and 8. It's a shared work. Not only is gospel work an all-consuming work, that it, we need to understand it touches every area of our lives as seen by Jesus in his fatigue, ministering as this woman in her need for physical water who abandons that to go and tell people of the living water, we see that it is a shared work between God and his people. God is both the sower and the reaper. He is the author and agent of salvation. The gospel originates with God. Its effectiveness, its Fruitfulness is also the result of his power at work. It is not of human wisdom or effort. Consider these words from Ephesians 2. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. That's how Jesus found this woman. Dead, but thirsty. Consumed by her sin, shamed by her sin, yet longing to be free and rid of it, to be cleansed, to be made whole. That spirit that is work in the sons of disobedience, Paul goes on to say in Ephesians 2, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. This is the way we were, but God, being rich in mercy, 
because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, has raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ. Paul says these famous words, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of work so that no one may boast. In another passage, Paul writes, it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Philippians 2.13. God is both sower and reaper. But as we get back to John 4, we see that God isn't just saving people randomly, like picking out balls out of a ball pit. God is using people. It all begins and cycles through God, but he uses people. He interrupts an ordinary day for this woman. He initiated a conversation with her in order to show her that he was the Savior she needed. And then she goes and immediately does what's intuitive. Tell others about this great good news. And there is a shared joy There's a shared labor. God is both sower and reaper. And there's a shared labor. Notice in verse 38, the disciples come back. And and I don't know how this is to be interpreted, quite honestly. I didn't look at the commentary on verse 38. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Is Jesus talking about the fact that they should have been evangelists when they went into Sychar to get food? Is Jesus talking about the fact they came back with food and no people? And the reason why I ask that is, you look at this. Look at um, verse 35, the second half of it. Jesus uses a common phrase, right? Don't we say that the, the harvest, the growing season is four months long and then there's a harvest? Look, I tell you, Lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. As the disciples turn and they see against the backdrop of Mount Gezerim, they see a crowd of people following this woman out to Jesus. And Jesus is pointing to the fields that are ripe for harvest. That's the people. The people that are coming to him. I don't don't know if Jesus was trying to shame his disciples. I'm not sure that's the conclusion John wants us to reach. Rather, I think it's this. Jesus is saying, brothers, my newest disciple is already doing work. You need to get busy like she is. Don't forget your mission, Christian. It's not just about our summer plans. It's not just about what we're going to do with our life, our future, our resources. We've been called into a shared work. It's a good work. It's a God-honoring work. It's a necessary work because Jesus is the only Messiah for all peoples. And he has given all his disciples a singular mission to do his work. The Lord of the harvest has sent his disciples, you and I, into homes, schools, churches, offices, factories, job sites, neighborhoods, cities, and perhaps even around the world to do his work, to sow the gospel. Most statistics agree that only a tiny portion, maybe 20% or less, of Protestant missionaries labor in the least reach half of the world's population. What does that mean? That means this, 80% or more gospel work that's taking place is taking a place in the midst of people who already have significant access to the gospel and churches. 80% of the work is being done in a place where there's already a strong gospel witness. Here's two ways that each and every one of us can partner with God in his kingdom work. 
we can pray for our missionaries. Pray for your elders, South Canyon. This summer, we have been working for months, reading books as elders, discussing them together, and there's more work to do to help us understand what does missions really look like for South Canyon Baptist Church. How should we intake missionaries? What missionaries or ministries should we support? Are they all equal? Or are there certain things that are more important? Are there unreached peoples of a vast, vast majority that are not being touched and and we should shift dollars that way? So pray for your elders as they read, think, and strategize that they would come to an understanding of what it means for South Canyon to do missions. Pray for the team that's going to Tanzania this summer. Pray that God will raise up more people from our church who will go and labor among those that don't have the gospel. Pray. Secondly, simply, go. Go and tell. Right where you live. I mean, look at the fact. This woman had no experience, right? Did she, did she go to seminary? Did she go to some Bible institute on Sunday nights after church? She didn't even have Sunday school. She had a conversation with one greater than Jacob. In fact, the Messiah. And that conversation so transformed her, she had simply an instinctive heart to tell others. She went to her city. People heard her testimony and they believed in Jesus. Others believed in him based on his own words. Look, uh, Jesus continues, or, or John continues in verse 39. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And, they, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. And they said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this indeed, this is indeed the Savior of the world. Perhaps God might be calling some of us to leave Rapid City, to labor in fields of harvest, where there are few, if any, laborers. God is stirring in your heart for this. I encourage you to reach out to an elder. We'd love to walk this road with you and discern where God might be leading you. Paul says, this is what we were saved for. Ephesians 2.10, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Gospel work is a shared joy between God and his people. I skipped verse 36, but you see Jesus' joy. He's so excited. His disciples come back with grocery bags full of food, and he's like, guys, you are missing this. Turn around. Look at this. She's only been a follower of me for just minutes, and she is returning with a crowd of people. And what a joy it is for us to partner with those in the gospel work. I'm so excited that we are getting to go and work with Jamin this summer in Tanzania. A missionary, a ministry that we as a church support in Teaching Truth International. And six of us are going to be able to go over there and share in that work. But it's not just the six of us who get to share in the joy. It's all of us. All who support financially by giving for that, to that Tanzania fund. All who support by praying. You will receive a harvest. And it's something that as we see God work, we can rejoice in. The woman of Samaria demonstrates what gospel transformation looks like. Joy over her salvation was such that she had to tell others without prompt, without instruction. We have this joyful privilege to carry the good news, the best news to the nations, that Jesus is the Messiah for all peoples, understanding that our mission is to carry out that message. Christian, have you forgotten your purpose? Maybe you become jaded by bias against those who have either hurt you or you believe may be on God's help. Recognize that your Savior has strategically placed you where you are in order to accomplish His kingdom work. 
Spend yourself for the gospel. For that work satisfies far more than anything else. And then we learn a lesson from the life of this woman who was in awe of her salvation. This great sinner instinctively and joyfully told others about Jesus. Friends, it's those who understand the magnitude of their forgiven sin who express the greatest love toward their Savior. Jesus said, those who have been forgiven little, love little. I hope that doesn't describe the hearts of anyone that's here today. When was the last time you reflected on the miraculous truth that God saved you from all your sin? That God is intimately involved in all areas of your life. Whether your past is like that of the Samaritan woman, or your past is like that of, of the hard-working disciples who may be a little impetuous or clueless, or that of Nicodemus, uh, a, a trained scholar. Whatever your past is, your joy can come from the knowledge that Jesus paid it all. Do you believe that the Messiah for all peoples is Jesus? Well, then embrace his mission. Go and tell. Lord, we thank you for this beautiful story that your love reaches to the least of us. In fact, Lord, none of us are without need for your great grace. None of us can get there on our own. We are all sinners in need of a Savior. Just as we read from Ephesians chapter 2, we were dead in our sins and trespasses. We were blind. We had no hope. But God, who is rich in mercy, has caused us to be born again. Let not the wonder, help us, Lord, to not let the wonder of our salvation uh, fall away from us. Let us treasure the fact with great humility and joy that you have indeed saved us. And I pray, Lord, that you would even stir the gospel work in hearts that may be here and hearing this, who are struggling with guilt over sin, who are struggling with an unworthiness. No one could ever love me. I've done all these things. Jesus, God, could never forgive me for what I did. Whatever it is, help them to see in this story that indeed you are their Savior. They have but to cry out and ask. Give them a heart of obedience, a heart of repentance, Lord. Let them be honest with you just as this woman was. And give them the joy that your people have of knowing the living water that wells up into eternal life. We pray, Lord, and we want to give you all glory. We want to make much of your name. All glory belongs to Christ. He is indeed greater than any other. And so we praise you now, and we ask that you would help us to be faithful in fulfilling the mission that you've called us to. In Jesus' name, amen.